You are listening to DNA Discoveries. I'm Edward Looney. And on DNA Discoveries, I help individuals who tell their stories about finding family through the autosomal DNA test kits. They have found parents or siblings and other relations as well. In my case, I found my cousin. I found my mother's biological sister's child. So uh, it's been a great ride for me in terms of uh, what has come after that discovery for me. And that's why I like to help others share their stories as well. You can share your story by reaching out to me. You can email me directly at DNA Discoveries Podcast at gmail.com or to go over to Fireside, DNA Discoveries.fireside.fm, and there use the contact form and you'll be able to get in touch with me. I can't produce and release episodes without your help. So if you have a story of finding family, I would love to hear from you. And today's story that I'm going to bring John in, and we're going to have a nice conversation here, it's a a different type of a story than uh, the ones that I've shared in the previous episodes. Because typically, the previous episodes have all been happy story endings for the most part. Someone finds their brother, they connect, they hang out. You know, in the last episode with Kim, she finds um, she finds out who her biological father is, and then becomes close with uh, the the relatives. So those are always happy stories. But sometimes there are people who do these autosomal DNA test kits. And the story doesn't end so well. They're shut out. People don't want to engage in conversation. Sometimes if you look at comments on other podcasts of this genre, there are people that kind of attack the podcast. And uh, it's because they don't like this idea of discovering family and what that all means uh, for their family of origin. So, uh, but I think it's a story worth telling. And maybe for someone out there who's listening who said, I didn't have a story that had hope at the end of it. Maybe this one will speak to you and give you encouragement in your situation right now. So John sent me an email. He's one of those people that said, I want to share this story. Now, interestingly enough, it's not his story that he's sharing. He's sharing his wife's story. She gave him permission, obviously, and uh, but he's the spokesperson for it. And I'm very happy to have John joining me today. So thanks so much for taking time out of your day uh, to have this conversation. Thank you, and thanks for having me. Now tell me. I know it probably seems a little strange that I'm speaking for my wife, but I've been the family genealogist for a long time. Yeah, and that kind of makes sense, you know, especially if you've you're the one who's been immersed in this. So, so yeah, so that's why uh, she does she not like talking about it, or she just says you talk about it better. She deems me to be more knowledgeable than she is. Now, I'm the expert qu- of the subject matter, so to speak. Sure. And it's quite a fascinating story um, because uh, as as you'll share it, you know, there's kind of something, there's this event that happens that changes the entire family of her parent. So why don't you share a little bit about that? Um, happy to. This story really starts with my wife's grandparents who were married in 1905 while they were married, they had seven children. And in, by May of 1922, there was an article that appeared in the Janesville Gazette that the wife, Carolyn Westby, her name was, during an argument with her husband, jumped from a moving car with a baby in her arms. 
Carolyn ended up in the hospital, and shortly thereafter, she filed for legal separation, and a divorce happened in 1923. Then, two years after the divorce, Carolyn gave birth to an eighth child, a son, James Irving Westby, naming her ex-husband as the father. The birth took place in Rockford, Illinois, and I have the date by birth records of October 21st, 1925. I I can only speculate on uh, what the mores were at that time back in 1925, but I'm pretty sure that the Westby family considered this recent addition um, not legitimate. And the only real clue I have of that is that when Mr. Westby died, his obituary, presumably written by his family, only listed seven children, not the eight that he really had. Interesting. So now both parents are dead, and they had them, but on all eight kids are orphans. And so they, they parsed them out among the rest of the family. Two children went to live with an older sister. A Westby aunt took in another two. The two older brothers went to live on a farm of a family friend. And one of those brothers is my wife's father. Uh, and the last and youngest sibling, James Irving, which is the, what this story is about, he was not quite three years old when all this happened. And he went to live with his mother's brother, Albert Monroe. Then over the years, the family has stayed in close contact, all except the youngest sibling, James Irving. In later years, uh, after I developed some research skills, I actually found him in the 1930 census, then five years old, living with his uncle Albert in Clinton, Wisconsin. But from that point forward, I could find no record. And as I mentioned, my father-in-law, or may have mentioned, my father-in-law and his siblings had no luck with their searches either. And they tried over the years through various means. You know, they lived in Wisconsin and I didn't, so they had an advantage. Sure. But they they found nothing. Speculation by the family at this point was perhaps he had had an early death or he was um, with a sealed adoption. Of course, back then, none of us had the advantages of online databases or Internet search engines. However, even with these elect- this electronic assistance, other than the 1925 birth record and the 1930 census, none of us could find any trace of James Irving Westby. That all changed one day when I logged into my wife's 23andMe account and found a heretofore unknown first cousin once removed. I immediately reached out and discovered that this person's grandfather was indeed adopted and that his grandfather's adopted name was J.J. Baker, which is a pseudonym. With this information, I was able to return to the Ancestry databases and I found the Social Security death record for J.J. Baker born on October 21st, 1925. And he died in 1907 in La Crosse, Wisconsin. J.J.'s birth date, coupled with his grandson's DNA, pretty much confirmed for me that we had finally located the missing brother. Furthermore, the Social Security records also listed J.J. with a Polish surname and a Baker surname, both. J.J. was listed in the 1940 census with the Polish surname. Speculation as to was he adopted by this Polish family. 
living in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. We also found a 1945 World War II draft registration under J.J.'s Polish name. However, by 1950, for some unknown reason, J.J. and his parents, his adopted parents presumably, all changed their name to Baker. Hmm. Well, that's very curious. So, just uh, so cl for clarification, you log into Twenty Three and Me, and who do you connect with, or who does your wife have a connection with that leads you to JJ Baker? The uh, it's a first cousin once removed of my wife's. It would have been JJ's grandson. And so then you talk to JJ's grandson, and he gives you the name JJ Baker. Yes. Okay. And that led you to doing all this other research of going on to the online databases and Social Security and the, the war draft records, et cetera. And that's how you can find all this information. Well, that's correct. Wow. How fascinating and, and very curious, too, you know, kind of all of those unanswered questions that you have right there in the middle. <laughs> There's a lot, isn't there? <laughs> yeah, for sure. So what else did you discover? Well, I discovered that one of the children's name was, again, a pseudonym, except for the middle name, was T. Westby Baker. And since all my father's family were originally Westby's, I was certain I had found the missing brother by now. Um, and then with this information, uh, I got um, his J.J.'s ob obituary that was published in the Lacrosse newspaper. And that listed his names of his wife and his five children. And by the time he died, he had been married a little more than 50 years. Um, after I had this information, online databases, common online databases, like a reverse phone directory and the like, gave me the addresses and phone numbers of, of the uh, Baker family. So I was you know, able to track down all that information. So do you and call then, them? Do you write a letter? What do you do? Well, I, I eventually write a letter. Okay. Uh, it turns out that Mrs. Baker and one of her children were living less than two miles of us in North Carolina where, where we were living at the time. And you, frankly, it's interesting because maybe you two, you know, her and, and you guys may have crossed paths, you know, like you could be at the grocery store and there she is on aisle six, and you're, like, going to go buy some chips or something on aisle six, and you pass ways, but you had no idea that somehow this was a relation. That's correct. And by that time, we had been living there close to 15 years, and, and the close proximity, that almost had to have happened. We just wouldn't know. Yeah, it's crazy that somehow your circles wouldn't have crossed paths, like, like, you go to church and she's in your same small group and like you would have got to know her. Like, I can't believe that didn't happen. Uh, right. But it didn't. <laughs> yeah, it didn't. So, okay. So by this time, uh, and when we felt like we were, um, getting, well, we're almost, I guess, giddy with excitement would be the way to put it. The missing brother was now found and we're going to hopefully be able to have a chance to connect with the family. After all these years, it kind of felt like a prospector who finally struck gold. For sure. The family's physical proximity seemed like kismet, like it was meant that we should contact each other. As you pointed out, we could have run into each other already and just not known. 
So it was at this point, I just, my wife and I decided to reach out to Mrs. Baker and briefly explain to her in a letter why we believe Mary was her niece, my wife, Mary. I would have just went over and knocked on her door, but maybe I'm too bold. I, we we were tempted. <laughs> in fact, we did drive by her house, but I didn't want to get accused of stalking either. Sure, sure. Um, we included contact information to the letter with Mrs. Baker and explained to her after all these years, we felt our quest was finally coming to an end and we would love to be able to get together and perhaps they could meet. Mary's got, um, my wife has got 20 or so first cousins that would all be nephews and nieces of Mrs. Baker. And, you know, that's a big family. We thought perhaps they'd like to meet up, but we assumed not naively as it turned out that that's not the case. So after several weeks of waiting, we finally heard back the original 23andMe member called us and basically told us in no uncertain terms that the subject of his grandfather, J.J. Baker, was taboo, and they would not discuss this with anyone. No explanation was given other than he was not a nice man. And as you can imagine, we were crushed, both because we obviously stirred up some bad memories in the Baker family, but also because we have permanently lost our dreams of reuniting the family. So this is where it now stands. That's my story. Sure. Each passing day, we keep hoping someone will come forward, but so far, we seem to be waiting in vain. Wow. Uh, now, at the time when you found, you know, who J.J. Baker was and his relation, were any of the, his brothers or other siblings still alive at that point? So, like, w- would you have been able to connect uh, those relatives or had they already all passed? They had all passed. J.J., okay. of course, was the youngest. Sure. So this would have been the next generation connecting with that generation. Gotcha. Right. Wow. So uh, I guess I'm curious, you know, why do you think the reaction was like that? So obviously it's taboo, as you mentioned, uh, that he's not a nice person. But but I guess I'm just trying to come to terms with that. And have you guys come to terms with it? Like, have you created scenarios of, you know, why this would be? Honestly, we really don't understand. They were married for over 50 years and raised five kids, apparently successful children. And something happened at his death that, that said, this is taboo. Huh? And we can speculate on the worst possible cases, you know, some kind of abuse or something like that or, but we don't know. Yeah. You wonder if there was like some sort of deathbed confession and he ended up being some serial killer or something like that, or, you know, I don't know. It could be. Yeah. Now, you mentioned early on in the story that, um, you know, he had a Polish last name and then, you know, obviously this Baker name, which I, I think you said is a pseudonym so that you're not disclosing the real name. So but but obviously these two different last names help us make sense of that. So you think or, or and maybe too, just to clarify. So when JJ Baker's father dies and all of the children are dispersed among relatives, who did he go to first? And then do you think there was another handoff? I guess that's in my head. That's what I got from what you were sharing, but I could have just misfollowed that. 
No, I, I think you're right. He went with his uh, mother's brother. And we knew that from the 1930 census, he was listed there. And then after that, for some reason or another, and there is speculation here again that there was some abuse involved as it, you know, from his uncle. But he went to live with either an adopted family or a foster family. We're not sure which with a Polish last name. Okay. And this story is quite interesting to me because I live in Wisconsin. And so you mentioned a lot of Wisconsin city names. So so this is kind of like a, a local home story for me almost, you know, so I kind of appreciate that. Uh, so that's what happens there. Now, so they never mention his name again. So I guess... You know, I just go back to they mustn't have loved him. And what you said, that 50 years they were married and, and somehow for there to be this switch, you know. Um, so from the point of his death to the moment when you reach out, how many years difference is that? Uh, roughly 15. Okay. Sure. Wow. I just, yeah, there's just something there about this story that like, there's curiosity, obviously, on your part, our part, uh, just what happened there. So what do you do? What do you do now going forward? You just wait, obviously. Um, but uh, so so obviously, you know his name. Uh, is he buried in South Carolina? Is he buried in Wisconsin in a family plot? Where is he buried? He's buried uh, in the cross, Wisconsin. In the cross, yeah. So I guess one thing you could do, you know, I guess is to go to La Crosse and to find his grave in the cemetery, and that's some sort of connection. Uh, but that's probably the only thing you can do. I don't know if you can trace more of his story, like, you know, like if you could find out what his job was and then maybe to figure out, oh, was he ever in the news or yeah, I don't know what further research can be done on your end uh, to learn more about him. Uh, I, I don't know either. For a while, we were paid members of newspapers.com, and I found some articles about him you know, where he was going to give a public speaking lecture, and he was a district officer of the Boy Scouts and things like that. Okay. But I don't know what else we could find. Yeah. Now, is it your sense that his five children, are they successful? Like, uh, I'm sure, you know, I, I know what a rabbit hole is because I go down them all the time in terms of like, <laughs> I want to learn about this today. And so you watch every YouTube video or whatever. So I'm sure now that you read his obituary, you know their names. Have you looked them up to see, are they successful? What are they doing with their lives? Is that some sort of uh, research you've done? I've looked um, at the... People who were still in Wisconsin, I haven't delved into their background too much, other than they also have families of their own, so and they've been married now for several years would imply a stable relationship. Yeah. Would it not? Yeah, for uh, sure. There's the one who's here in um in North Carolina has got a very successful business and appears to be a success from all standpoints. It's a you know, in the finance industry. And then there's another brother in Virginia who owns a winery. Wow. Well, your your wife's father, your father-in-law, obviously, you know, was there hurt, uh, you know, by the fact that J.J. 
was never really a part of their lives. Like, do they often talk about him? Like, I wonder whatever happened to JJ. And because uh, all the other siblings stay in contact. So you wonder where did the fall in communication between you know, the other seven siblings and JJ, how did that come about? You know, like, obviously, maybe going to that adoptive or foster family, maybe that was it that they didn't want him reaching out, or he didn't know how to reach out. But uh, I guess that's another curiosity question on my part. Um, mine too, when he named his one of his sons with the middle name Westby, which is the family name, he had to have known about his real family at that point i don't believe that was an accident how old and was jj himself could have reached out sure yeah and how old was jj uh at the at the time when his parents died and and he was dispersed you know to one of the relatives he was just under three years old okay so so yeah he wouldn't really even have any memories uh, all that much, you know, maybe just kind of that fading memory of others around him. But, but obviously there were no memories forged together with him, I guess. So, so yeah, he would be at a little bit of a disadvantage. And, you know, there, there had to have been some because he had his birth date, right? Exactly right on the social security record. So he had to have known something. Yeah, you wonder too. Again, all we can do is speculate, but obviously as he grows up, he has to ask that question, well, whatever happened to my family? And so does he go back to that Janesville Gazette article that you reference at the very beginning? And uh, does he learn his family story? And, you know, if you learn your family story, why wouldn't you reach out then? Why wouldn't you say, I want to find my brothers? Like, there's just something very off about that. It is. Um, again, we can speculate that he felt mistreated by the family somehow or another, but we don't know. Sure, sure. So there is closure. At least you know his name. You know where he ended up. You know all of that. So, so I guess that's one positive. Of course, it didn't end uh, the way that you wanted. Do you think the story might change? Do you think that maybe once J.J. Baker's wife dies, maybe other family will uh, reach out to you and maybe read you all in? Well, it's possible. I hope it is. I don't want, I don't wish her to die. Of course, but I, you know, I hope they uh, just have a change of heart somehow or another and decide to communicate. And so she, she lives in your community. Is that correct? That's correct. Still to this very day. Uh, as far as I know. And do you know what she looks like? I have a picture of her um, oh. that I got off of, you know, common databases. Sure. So then, so do do you keep your eyes open so that maybe as you're <laughs> yes. out and about, there she is. Would you would you approach her and talk to her, or would you? Oh man, I don't know. Um, you know, in hindsight, I may have made a, a mistake sending that letter to her to begin with. I probably should have sent it to her son, who also lives nearby. He would have maybe received it a little bit better. Sure. It may have scared her. She may have thought it was a scam. I don't know. Sure. Now, uh, do you uh, scour the obituaries every day to see if she passed? So would you go to the funeral home and pay your respects? Well, if I... 
Oh man, these are all questions I think of. Right? You know, if that family doesn't want to talk to us, I hate to show up there and have them say, "Well, who are you?" And I say, "Well, you're long lost cousins." Yeah, maybe they would throw us out. I wonder. Maybe you would just send a sympathy card or something like that, and just say, "Saw saw Mrs. Baker died. She was the husband of my wife's father, or the brother of my wife's father." if you ever want to talk, I'm always here. I, I don't know. Yeah. Like that's kind of the message. Maybe you're writing a, a sympathy card. Yes, that's a good idea. So the two people that live close by, the two sons of J.J. Baker that you said are successful, one in finance, one owns a wine business. Um, ha- did they ever communicate with you? Who is the person that reached out to you and said, don't ever talk to us again? Was that the one that J.J.'s you matched with? grandson. Okay. Who was the original 23andMe person oh, that sure. led to all this. So they didn't even want to introduce anybody new into the scenario. They, they, That's correct. Okay. So, wow. What a, what a crazy story. But again, I think it's one worth telling because somebody out there has matched with someone. Maybe they've been looking for their own father and they reach out to their father and they're rejected. And so... You know, for them to know there are other people who have experienced something very similar, I think can give them a little peace of mind. And, um, you know, it, it kind of probably helps with the processing of it all. So, so yeah, what if yes, I'm, go ahead. I was going to say the only advice I could offer people is to put a little more thought into that initial contact. In my case, I naively assumed they'd be thrilled to death to meet us. Sure. And I wish I would have tempered my original letter. And when you wrote that letter, you had already done some initial research about them and everything like that. Yes. Okay. And so you kind of had a good grasp. It wasn't like you were writing to someone very, you know without any knowledge and saying, hey, this is what I think. But it's like, no, you, you've exhausted all the channels and, and whatnot. And so that was the next step was to make the contact. Yeah, I th- you know, I don't think you should beat yourself up over it. I think you did the right thing. Um, obviously, I don't know the letter you wrote, but um, I, I think that is the logical next step. So, um, so, so... I think it's there's nothing that you could have written that probably would have changed this outcome is my guess, but uh, I could be wrong. Yeah, well, thanks for that. That makes me feel a little better. Yeah. So, uh, what what does your wife's uh, other siblings? You know how how do you how do they process this all now? Just um, well, that's over, or do they ever talk about this? Uh, in casual conversation when they get together? We do. Um, they all kind of feel the same way we do. We can't really do much because they told us, don't call us, you know, don't yeah. contact us. And I hate to break that and make ourselves, you know, a pain. Yeah. And I think they all feel the same way. The uh, problem is that all of us are getting older. Yeah, sure. <laughs> You know, my wife's oldest brother, who's a does a lot of genealogy work himself, has just turned eighty, and we're not going to be able to communicate with these people forever. Sure, it'd be nice if we could all do it now. Yeah, 
Have you written a family history of, uh, you know, this whole incident or whatever? Or, uh, it, you know, it sounds like it would make a nice little, yeah, a, a nice little novel or something like that. Uh, yeah, I have briefly written it a couple of pages, but sure. Because obviously you're going to want to hand this story down to other people so that in the family line, it's not a story that's forgotten. So, and obviously right here, this podcast, you know, is another way. It's a digital footprint of this story so that, you know, a long time from now, if, if, you know, the audio is still out there, uh, people will be able to listen and hear it. And, uh, you know, your future uh, relatives will will know the story too. So, but I think it's good to transmit it and to to make sure people know it. I agree with you. So, we, I tend to share a lot of information with my children and uh, my cousins. When I see them, I'm constantly updating them on new things I found, but especially my children. And this is just one part of my whole family. I mean, you know, I have my whole side not, and my wife's side. This, you know, I can trace my wife's ancestry back to the Salem witch trials. Oh, wow. So I've shared the story a lot. <laughs> so your uh, your wife did the autosomal DNA test kit. She did the 23andMe variety. Uh, I'm assuming, have you done a, a test kit yourself? My wife and I both have done 23andMe and Ancestry.com test kits. Okay. And uh, were there any surprises for you, or everything was just as you expected? Uh, the one surprise for me was that I had 6% Ashkenazi Jewish in my background. Okay. I, I had no clue. Oh, that's funny. Yeah, I have a, a guest uh, that's appeared twice on the show, Ed. Uh uh, his episode uh, is a few episodes back. We did an update episode, but but that was a discovery that he had. So um, that that's interesting. So uh, for him, that like kind of revolutionized his life, and he did all you know, like his whole like family that he found. They do these like Zoom Seder meals and whatnot. But but uh, has has it made any difference in your life knowing that information? No, not really. Other sure. than. Yeah, I know I'm a, I'm a related. I yeah. guess would be the way to put it. Sure. I got a small tie to the Jewish community. I'm very grateful that you reached out. That you said I want to share my story uh, with your podcast audience, and I think that the audience is going to receive this story pretty well. I think that you know there's there's a lot there uh, for us to to think about uh, in in the whole process of discovering family and kind of, again, looking at the opposite perspective of a, a positive ending. So, um, yeah, it took a lot of courage for you to come forward and to say, I want to share it. seems like, uh, as you mentioned, you've shared this a few times, uh, you know, uh, especially with the witch trials, uh, as you mentioned. So, um, yeah, but thank you so much for thinking of, of this show and uh, wanting to be a part of it. And thank you for being a listener. So I appreciate that, too. Thank you as well. I enjoy being on the show, and I hope your listeners find it interesting. Thanks for listening to this month's episode of DNA Discoveries. I'm very honored that you have listened and that you've reached the end of today's interview. If you wouldn't mind, please consider sharing this interview, this episode, with someone who might appreciate it in your life. Maybe share it on your social media as well. Also, if you could rate and review it on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, 
that would be helpful in continuing to reach a greater audience. Also, there is a DNA Discoveries Facebook page. It's facebook.com slash DNA Discoveries pod, P-O-D. And there, if you follow, uh, I want to start posting content there. I've not really been doing that. And in fact, I would be open to having a volunteer from the DNA Discoveries listening community help to manage that page. So uh, go on over to Facebook and like that page. And soon I'll begin posting more frequently, especially when there's an episode release. If you have a story to share, a DNA discovery of your own, please don't hesitate to reach out to me. You can do so by looking in the show notes and I provide the links or the email address that you can reach me at to begin that conversation to have you as a guest on DNA Discoveries. I look forward to being with you again next month when we share another story of finding family. Finding family.